ministry as a church, we're focusing on learning the way of Jesus. And today, we're doing a little standalone sermon, today and then on Saturday for Christmas Eve, uh, uh, for this Christmas season. Um, today, we're focusing on the visit of the Magi, or you might have heard wise men, traditionally known as wise men, who visited Jesus after he was born. And this story relates to learning the way of Jesus uh, in that, in this story, we see several examples. In fact, the whole story really is a, a picture of the humility of Christmas, the humility of Christmas. And this is such a good reminder for us today that the way up in God's kingdom is actually down. Because humility is one of the key aspects of the incarnation of Jesus, which is what Christmas is all about. And in turn, humility becomes a key character trait for us as we learn to follow his way. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. We're going to go through this interesting story. We're going to read through it together, and then we'll unpack it so that we understand what the story is saying and what it means for us today. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well, with a festive background. <laughs> does that bring joy to your heart? Christmas joy to your hearts as it does mine? I hope so. Okay, Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's uh, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is God's word. So just a little context for us on the text. First, the Gospel of Matthew was written by... You can participate this morning if you'd like. <laughs> that was an easy one, okay? Matthew was also known as Levi. He was a tax collector uh, who, before he became a Christian, which means that he likely would have been wealthy but not well-liked. But Matthew met Jesus, and Jesus called Matthew to follow him, and he did, and he left his, this lucrative career behind him, and he became an apostle or eyewitness to the life and ministry, and ultimately to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as we say often around here, just like in Matthew's life, Jesus changes everything. Well, with that, let's jump back into this story and make sure we understand what Matthew is saying here. Look back at verse 1. He writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so let's pause here. Now, there's a lot going on here in just the first two verses. So uh, first, fair enough, we're a little backwards here because it is not yet Christmas for us today. And here we are in a story after Jesus is already born. So I'm sorry. And also Merry Christmas. Uh, But uh, this story did take place sometime after the birth of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say exactly when. Uh, but I would guess it wasn't too long after the birth of Jesus because the family was still in Bethlehem, in Judea, and that's not where they lived. We'll get to this in the Christmas story this Saturday in Luke chapter 2, but according to Luke's gospel, Mary and Joseph had traveled from Nazareth, which is in the northern, uh, it was a northern, in the northern region of Judea, which is where Jesus would eventually grow up, um, down to Bethlehem in the south, which is where he was born. And this is because, if you re- might recall, a census was being taken by the Roman government, and so everybody in Judea had to return to their ancestral homes. Since Joseph was from the house and line of the ancient king David, they had to go to Bethlehem, which was David's royal city, as the song says. So while they were there, Matthew writes that Magi came from the east, not to Bethlehem initially, but to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now, this is very awkward because there was already a king in Jerusalem, King Herod, as the text says, known as Herod the Great. Now, Herod didn't have absolute authority over the kingdom of Judea at this time because they were subjugated to the Roman Empire and the mighty Caesar Augustus. But still, if you're a king, how would you like someone showing up on your doorstep looking for the new king, which apparently who had been uh, just recently born? Awkward indeed. Uh, But who was it that showed up on his doorstep? And what made them think that a new king had been born? Well, this makes the story become even more mysterious. The answers to these questions are very strange. Matthew writes that it was magi, traditionally wise men, from the east who had tracked the appearance of a star and had interpreted that astrological sign that... It was a sig- signifying the birth of a new king, king of the Jews. The word magi is where we get our word magician today. Magi are found throughout the Bible in ancient Egypt to the south, but also in Babylon and Persia to the east. The Old Testament prophet Daniel was put in charge of the magi uh, when he was in exile in Babylon. Now, the work of a magi seems to be some sort of combination of pagan priest philosopher, scientist, and fortune teller. They were, they were asked to discern or uncover secret wisdom and knowledge uh, to advise the king through the interpretation of signs and dreams and other things. So these pagan mystics had used astrology to understand that a new king had been born. Now, naturally, they went to Jerusalem to look for this king, as Jerusalem was the capital of Judea, and it was the central place of worship for the Jewish people for for many years. Well, how would Herod respond to this strange visit? We see this in verse 2. When King Herod, look back, when King Herod heard this, he was 
disturbed, obviously, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, well, that wasn't, that, that uh, went just as expected, probably. When Herod heard that there was a potential rival king somewhere in his kingdom, uh, not a member of his house and line, who, who had supernatural signs associated with his birth, he was disturbed. What would this mean? Would there eventually be an attempted coup or a civil war or an insurrection? No wonder all of Jerusalem, it says, was disturbed as well. What did this mean? Well, no doubt everyone had heard the story about these magi, these foreign astrologers who had arrived. However, the people of Israel, they didn't have magi. Fortune-telling, consulting spirits, and the like, these were all forbidden under the Old Testament law of Moses. So Herod calls together his advisors, not magi, but chief priests and teachers of the law. These were experts in the Bible of their day and asked if there was any prophecy in the Old Testament about where the Messiah or the anointed one from God was supposed to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem, in Judea. And, and then they quote the prophet Micah who wrote that a ruler or a shepherd would come from Bethlehem. Now this is, of course, one of many, many prophecies in the, in the Hebrew scriptures about the coming of the Messiah. Here's just one other example from Jeremiah 23. Let me just read this to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Pretty much from the fall of humanity to sin on, God had repeatedly been promising to send one who would come, who would finally, once and for all, deal with the problems of sin and death in the world. So at the time of Jesus and his birth, there were many Jewish people who were watching expectantly for the coming of the Messiah. Now Herod knew this and right away assumed it was possibly the Messiah who had been born. Now, tellingly, this didn't serve to calm him down. He didn't rejoice that the Messiah was possibly, had possibly arrived. This only fueled uh, his suspicion and concern to protect his kingdom and his status and his family for himself. Look back at verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now here we see the evil genius of Herod secretly sending the Magi to Bethlehem under the pretense that he too would like to worship this new king. Now, of course, he wasn't interested in worshiping this new potential Messiah. Later in Matthew's gospel, we learn that it was Herod's intention to kill the baby, which reveals Herod's heart toward the Lord and what had been promised in the word of God. Nevertheless, the Magi are sent on their way to find Jesus with the direction uh, they received from the prophets 
in God's word. Now, isn't this interesting? Let's just think about what's happening. The scriptures help Gentile seekers with a radically different life than what would have been expected of them as believers. The scriptures actually point them to find the Jewish Messiah. It's really no different to this day, is it? But what happened next? Would the Magi smell the intrigue and political scheming and run away? Would they protect themselves? Would they lead Herod right to the birth of this new baby? We find out in verse 9. Let's look at that. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, so the Magi found that the star indeed marked the place where a baby had been born. The supernatural sign was confirmed for them. His mother was named Mary and his name was Jesus. Now these uh, pagan magician priests or these Gentile astrologers or these foreign dignitaries, however you want to call them, they were filled with joy. They weren't disturbed. They bowed down, and it says that they worshiped Jesus. They opened their gifts for him, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were all incredibly costly gifts. Now later, I believe in the providence of God, the Magi's gifts likely funded Mary and Joseph's flight into Egypt to avoid Herod's wicked attempt to put Jesus to death. But here, they were simply gifts appropriate for the birth of a king. Three gifts are mentioned, but we don't know for sure that there were only three magi. Probably they would have had a much larger entourage to make such a journey, a long journey from their kingdom, perhaps hundreds of miles to the east. But the text doesn't say. So if you have three wise men in your manger scene at home, that's fine. But what must Mary and Joseph have thought when these strange men visited? Well, the story ends with verse 12, very simply. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So Herod's plot was foiled. He was furious. The Magi went home, and Jesus' family was able to escape as refugees to Egypt until Herod had died, and it was safe for them to return to Nazareth, perhaps years later. Merry Christmas. This is part of the Christmas story. Now, obviously, nothing about the story of the birth of Jesus is ordinary. This certainly, including the Magi visit, certainly wasn't in Mary's preferred birth plan, I would guess. But I think the story of the Magi is probably, among lots of unusual things, one of the stranger aspects of the Christmas story. The fact that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, meaning anointed one, the Christ, sent by God to redeem and rescue his people. The one whom God had promised for generations through the prophets. The one who would finally deal once and for all with the problems of sin and death. Could there be a more important birth? Was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. 
He was laid in a manger, not in a palace. He was born to Mary and Joseph of the small town community of Nazareth, not to Herod the Great. He was recognized by shepherds and pagan magi because of revelation from God and not the chief priests and the teachers of the law who were the experts of the messianic prophecies. He was born not during the power and glory of Israel under the ancient King David a thousand years earlier, but during their low status as conquered subjects of the Roman Empire. God had revealed this not through the prophets to the Magi, but through astrology, through the means that they were used to, through the signs that they were paying attention to as to the birth of his son. And then spoke to them again, these Gentile priests practicing all sorts of things that God had forbidden. He warned them in a dream to go back a different way to spare their lives. Now all of these things and a hundred other details here all point us to the incredible humility of the Christmas story. The incarnation of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, was the most humble event in human history. Why? Because Jesus wasn't just born like you and I were born. At the birth of Jesus, he had come from heaven into the world that he had made, becoming a part of this world. This means that the creature had become, the creator had become a creature, too. The author of life had become a key character in the plot that he was writing. The word incarnation comes from John chapter 1, where it says that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Being made flesh is what incarnation means. So the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the spirit and life itself was made flesh. And all these things took humility. When Jesus came into the world, he had to humbly set aside his needs, his wants, his preferences, his rights, and the glory that he had enjoyed from eternity past in heaven in order to meet our greatest need with his life, death, and resurrection from the dead. He both said and taught and demonstrated that he came not to serve, uh, to be served as the true king that he was, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, including both Jew and Magi Gentile. He came for both the priests and the Magi. He came for Herod and Caesar and all the other kings, but for all the people who lived in Bethlehem and Jerusalem and all over, wherever the Magi were from too. The Christmas story is a story not about pride or power or influence or ego, but one of humility and redemption and salvation. In fact, it's a story where the greatest of all becomes the least, so that the lost and the last and the least among us, even today, might find that we are great in him. So today, I just want to ask, how are we doing with this? As Christians, how are we doing with our humility? 
Now, I joked before this uh, that this is going to be the greatest sermon you are ever going to hear on humility. <laughs> it's hard. Did you get it? That's a joke. That's one person laughed. Okay, that's, it's not, maybe that's not the best joke, but pride comes so easily. Pride rears its ugly head silently but powerfully in big ways and in little ways all the time. Pride is our default mode. Now, speaking for myself, I can honestly say that I sadly often look at other people not as my neighbor deserving of my love, my loving service, my commitment to speak the truth in love, whose needs and preferences ought to come ahead of my own. But instead, I see people far too often as an obstacle in the way of my goals or as an object I might be able to use to accomplish something for me, for my glory, for my benefit, for my tribe. Now this is not the humility of Jesus. This is the pride and ego of the world. Pride says I come first. Pride says I'm the main character in this world and everybody else is like a supporting role or an NPC. But pride sucks all the joy and gratitude out of life. Pride leads to entitlement and suspicion, like Herod, protecting the turf of your family or your role or your position or your wealth ahead of all the others. A world of pride is a nasty place. But a world of humility is a wonder and a blessing for all. Why? Because if everyone is looking to the needs of others, then everyone's needs will be more than met. But no one will have their noses bent out of shape because they're looking out for themselves. This is the way of Jesus. And even though this is such a difficult way to learn in this world of pride that we find ourselves in, this is the way that ought to be for the followers of Jesus as well. It's not that Jesus destroys all power and all authority and all hierarchy for Christians today or in the kingdom of God, I believe, in the future. It's just that he completely subverts what power and authority are used for. Again, the way up is down. Jesus said, if you want to be first in my kingdom, you must be last. The greatest among you will be the least. It's this counterintuitive principle of greatness, power, and authority that results in a kingdom of love and life and freedom. So today, as, as we meditate on the birth of Jesus, let us press in to the humility of Jesus. Let us give up our worldly tendency to fight for our rights and our preferences and use our time and money and energy to serve and love others, putting their needs ahead of our own. I understand that this is costly. I understand that it will cost you if you try to live a life like this. And you may not be served in return in the way that you would serve. Which is why finally, we must look to Jesus as he is today, and no longer a baby, no longer humble in humble circumstances, no longer in darkness, no longer in weakness or anonymity, 
But Jesus today is high and lifted up. Jesus today is in glory, honor, and strength, seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He has ascended. He is exalted. And one day he will return in this same glory that he enjoys today and that he enjoyed in eternity past because he has been exalted, lifted to the highest place. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven who died to free us from the sin of pride and to make us joyfully, gladly humble. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are consumed by ourselves. Please forgive us. You have created us to be creatures who love and serve one another, who worship you and love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. We fail all the time in both of those tasks, in both of those callings, in both of those vocations, because we get in the way. Our ego gets in the way. Our needs get in the way. Our desires, preferences, opinions get in the way. We dehumanize other people because it makes us feel better. We look down on others because it makes us feel better. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought because it makes us feel better. But Lord, this is such a destructive way. Please forgive us and give us the power and the strength in Christ to be people of humility, to be willing as you, Lord Jesus, were willing to set aside our glory, honor, and praise, to set aside our rights and preferences and all of the things that we're right to have. But Lord Jesus, help us to think less about those things and more about the needs of others. Lord Jesus, we are desperate in need of your help to do this but we trust you and we will learn from you and we trust that you empower us day by day and step by step by your Holy Spirit and we cannot wait for the day when you will return. Not Jesus meek and mild, but Jesus in glory. And then we finally will be fully freed from the power of pride. We look forward to that day, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.